Hey, what's up, guys? Sorry for the wait on this episode. I know it's been a while, but I had to take a little break before the holidays. And on top of that, this episode uh, also took a little longer to produce. Uh, I promise not to take that long of a break until probably this time next year. Also, happy holidays and Merry Christmas from Jana and I. 2019 was a big year for us. We took a leap of faith on producing this podcast, and your guys' response means everything to us. So thanks for that. Um, Due to the holiday, our next episode won't be out until a few days after the new year. But remember to subscribe to the podcast and be on the lookout on social media at whole underscore PTSD. We're going to be releasing some new resources after the first of the year, and uh, we're definitely going to take a few more leaps of faith in 2020. So for this episode, I went in deep and interviewed my own family. Why, you may ask? Well, I remember a conversation I had with my dad about how the family treated him while he was going through the thick of PTSD, both positive and negative treatment. On top of that, after we started doing the podcast, a lot of family came out and said they never realized that my dad had PTSD or was even really affected by his work. So I had to dive in and try to get the story from their perspective. Also, around the holidays, seeing some family members is tough, but inevitable, especially for those with PTSD. Hopefully this helps spark the conversation between family members and shines light on how PTSD can affect families. Lastly, this episode is a little lengthy, so I did it in chapters for you guys. It's all timestamped in the description of this episode. Hope you enjoy. Chapter one, a mother's love for a child. As a mother, I listened and it was hard to be patient. I wanted that healing to come. Okay, my name is Diana Lombardi and I am the mother of Peter Marcus. That's my grandma. Anyone who knows her will tell you she's very outspoken, very protective, and one adjective she can't shake is that she's persistent. I started out by asking her if it was tough to be the mother of not just one, but two first responders. Yes, my uncle is also a first responder, but we'll get to that later. It was because when they were younger, I was so used to them sharing a lot with me, a lot. Um, But I also didn't want to be the kind of mother that be to be pressuring them and pressuring them and pressuring them to be telling me every so often they would tell me of something and I would just accept it. But I didn't want to be like pushing them to tell me because in my heart I knew that what they had been uh, like, like maybe car accidents, maybe fires, maybe whatever, uh, maybe somebody being burned to death. I didn't want them to have to be repeating it, repeating it. So what is a mother thinking when she finds out her kid has been through something tragic or maybe in danger? Well, let me tell you what happened that day. Your Uncle Paul called me and he said, Mom, there's going to be some news and it's going to involve Bumper. And I, and I, for, I mean, I almost wanted to faint because I thought he's going to tell me something bad happened to my son. And I remember, even right now, I can still get chills. But he said, Mom, he's okay. And you have to, you know, just... Be calm about it. Don't get up. Don't get excited about it. When all this is over with, he'll call you and he'll talk to you. And he said, "I gotta go, mom." And I said, "Okay." I remember uh, going to the bedroom and sitting there, and I wanted to cry a lot, a lot. What little when I turned on the news and what little I did find out, I thought, "Oh no! Oh no! No!" When he called me, I knew that. I knew something was wrong because I know my I know my children. I know I can always tell you when something's wrong with your dad. Not wrong, but bothering them. I can always tell when something's bothering Paul. Always, always. And I remember when he called me and he and he says, Mom, did you hear? And I go, Yeah. And 
he started, he said, Mom, the bullet went by my head. I'm alive. And I said, well, let's just thank God for that. In my mind, because being a crisis worker, uh, a retired crisis worker, I knew there was going to be a lot of things coming up. The very first thing that I, in my mind, and because this is what I went through with survivors, is the guilt. And sure enough, it, it came up once. Mom, why, why them, not me? The difference between working with a survivor and my son is that I didn't want to be bringing it up constantly because I didn't want him to be remembering all the time. I would listen to him, and the only time I would give him answers is, is if he asked me. Then I would, but, but in my heart, I knew I couldn't keep questioning him. I hurt so bad for him. I mean, it's like, I remember saying, God, give me, give it to me. Let me take it. Let me, please, give it to me. He's my baby. How does his mother know that something may be wrong with her kid? He's always been one to call me all the time. Um, even if it's just uh, just to, you know, Mom, what are you doing? Is everything okay and everything? Um, uh, the calls were fewer. Um, I had to call. Um, and I always asked, you okay? And of course, it was always okay, okay, okay. And I didn't want to confront him with any of my issues because I knew in my heart, I knew he was suffering. I knew it. But I also knew that if he didn't want to talk about it, I didn't want to bring it up. So time went by and more time went by and then just things I could, I could tell on his, the sound of his voice. I could tell the little things he said. I could, I could hear it. He would say something like things like, well, it doesn't matter, Mom. Or, uh, yeah, I gotta go. And those kind of things may not seem like anything to, it, to, to anybody. But to me, see, that's my son. I knew him. And all the time, sometimes I would see him. And I could see it. And I would hug him. And uh, it was kind of like a different hug. And how does a mother know when things are getting better? I remember just mainly hearing this this voice that had more, more like, more hope that things were going to get better. Now, I'm gonna tell you, I talk to my son now and I can hear it in his voice. He's at peace. So what is my grandma's best advice for a mother whose kid is going through PTSD? Praying, listening, and let them know that you're there. Um, I remember telling him several times, I'll never leave you, son. Even though you might kick me out, but I'll never leave you. I would try and kind of joke about it. You know? And what is your best advice to a son or daughter who is going through PTSD and might be wondering how to interact with their mom? I would, I would say acknowledge them. My son acknowledged me. Even if he didn't want to talk about what happened, if a parent says, tell me what happened, it, you know, it, it's more, to me, it's more respectful to say, you know what, I don't want to talk about it. And so for right now, you know, give me time. And I think that if the parent honors it, I think that, you know, they, I think they'll get further in their healing. Chapter two, you know how we are. Um, I'm Pete Marquez, father of Pete J. Marquez. That's my grandpa. 
Pete Marquez, a.k.a. Papa Pete. He's retired from Cal Fire. Actually, him and my dad retired in the same position, Deputy Chief of Law Enforcement for Cal Fire's Southern Region. While we're on the topic, he's retired Cal Fire. As you know, my dad is retired Cal Fire. As you'll soon hear, my Uncle Paul is retired Cal Fire, and my cousin is just starting his career with Cal Fire. So it's an ongoing family tradition. But let's hear what my grandpa thinks of having his two sons follow in his footsteps. Well, it's uh, it's quite... Um... It makes me proud to have them as, as first responders and to follow in the footsteps. Um, Cal Fire is a good career, um, so I think they'll do well. Yeah, I think they'll do well. But uh, they've done well. There was always that concern. Uh, you know, through my career, there was those things that um, you never did want to see, but you had to being a first responder, accidents out on the highways, uh, fire burn victims, people who are emotionally distraught. Yeah, I just kind of wondered how they would cope with that. During my career time, especially in the early years, um, there wasn't a, a support system for firefighters as there is now. And now a lot of things have happened in the past few years that not only for firefighters, but any first responder, uh, college students and those who are impacted. Yeah, there's a lot available now for them. So even though I was pretty sure I knew the answer, I had to ask my grandpa if he ever talked with his sons about the things they'd see on the job. No, you know how we are. <laughs> it's hard. It's not difficult, but it was just something that we never discussed a lot. Some items would come up, you know, friends, retiring friends, joining, things happening, but nothing really in detail that would emotionally upset us. Yeah. So with that said, let's move on to the start of the thick of my dad's PTSD journey, Minkler. Well, I was home, and I got the call, and um, I wasn't given a lot of information initially as to exactly how and how bad it was, other than the fact that they were unable to get out of the situation. So I didn't know if they were unable to get out of the situation because uh, traffic-wise, personnel coming in, uh, resources that were needed, and they were part of them, they couldn't get away. But as the day progressed, I realized that it was a lot different than that, and that he was still in, had been still in danger, yeah. So uh, it uh, made me think as to what could be done by me to help him get out of that situation. And I knew that I personally couldn't do anything, but that Pete being with other law enforcement agencies, I was sure that they would handle it properly. Yeah, there was nothing I could do. Uh, and I didn't want to be in a position to get in the way. Um, I know that your mom needed support, family needs support, uh, but if you second guess as to what happened, uh, I guess I could have done things differently, but I guess we all second guess. I asked him as a father, did he start to notice a difference in my dad after Minkler? I didn't see a lot of change myself. Uh, because I wasn't around in 24-7 like you guys. But I could sense something might be wrong by the way he behaved around the family. But I didn't know if that was caused by that incident or if that was caused by other family matter matters or what that could be. And again, uh, when we look at what happened and how we could probably fix that, uh, we should have talked about it more so I could get an understanding as to what is going on. Is it... Is it the job? Is it family? What is it? He was uh, short-tempered. 
uh, some things that he would say to the family, uh, more to the family, because they wasn't around him as much when he would uh, behave in a manner with other relatives or friends. But, um, yeah, I could see that there was some personality changes in him that were a little disturbing to me. But again, you know, here we go. We just don't discuss those things. And we should, we should, really should. Paul mentioned it to me a couple of times. Uh, your mother asked me a couple of times to uh, to talk to him uh, because of some of the way he was behaving at home. Um, and I vaguely would mention something, ask him how is it going, and but you know your dad. Uh, unless I really drilled him, he probably wouldn't say anything to me. So I didn't really push the issue a lot. I just kept monitoring you guys as far as you know the family life how you guys were doing and it seemed to be a very very nice family life but uh now what really brought it to my attention was when your mother mentioned something to me about how he was uh, acting at home so when did it start getting better well i think when he started seeking uh, or receiving help uh professional help it was a good sign for me that he understood maybe that there is a problem and he was able to acknowledge that he does need help. Um, and as the days progressed, the years progressed, I could see there was less and less of his um, becoming irritable um, just at the spur of a moment. So I could see some progression in his personality. So what's my grandpa's best advice for other parents of first responders who are going through PTSD? Well, I think once the families the fathers, the mothers, to realize that a family member is suffering from that, that they need to get involved and, and discuss with the family members what's going on, how they feel. Um, that was kind of a, of a new symptom for me, if you will, because none of us have ever, as far as I know, experienced that. Uh, so it was all new to me. It was all new to Jenny. It was all new to the whole family. Um, but I think your dad, his personality and the way he's, the way he is, uh, in a good way, uh, he was more inclined to react like he did. Again, I think they need to, to discuss it, sit down and discuss it. It's, um, you need to be open as to what's going on, how you feel, um, and how it's affecting the family. A lot of things I didn't bring forward because I didn't want to get your mom involved. You know, and I, at that point in time, your dad was still feeling the effects of it, and he probably still is. So I didn't want that problem to fester at home if I brought it forward to your dad. Uh, but no, we all need to talk about it. We all need to sit down. And whether we talk to each other, we talk to other family members, everybody knows that whatever we say about that is only for the good of who, who is a, a victim of that. Yeah, we just need to open up. Chapter 3. Guys will be guys, brothers will be brothers. My Uncle Paul and my dad are so similar that people often mistake them for each other. They both had the same haircut, they both have the same mustache, and they're only a few years apart. I mean, shit, they even had the same career. I was in the, uh, worked for Cal Fire and started back in 86. As everybody else, as everybody does, you start on an engine and then you can uh, advance in different areas. And so I opted 
to follow like my dad did, my brother did, and went into law enforcement. Yeah, you know, when he first promoted to division chief, he was a division chief here in the, in the unit where I worked, and I was a battalion chief, so he never really directly supervised me, but he kind of supervised me. And then with our dad, worked in the same area too, so a lot of people knew all three of us. You know, when you have like your dad, when you have your father that is in the department and people know your father, which our dad was and very well respected, and so you kind of try to live up to that respectfulness that people um, that you, you know people give you and have given your father. And so I think that uh, my brother, your dad, um, tried to live up to that, and we both tried to live up to that. And sometimes we try to go beyond that to try to do even better than was we were normally. So what's it like to have a brother and a dad who are first responders? Does it make it harder or easier to talk about things you see at work? Yeah, you know, um, our family has always been not really touchy-feely. We just kind of see each other or talk with each other. And if something's wrong, we just deal with it then, and that's all we deal with. And so the day of, uh, excuse me, the day before Minkler, I was called and asked if I would be assigned to that, was available to be assigned to that assignment. And I told them I was not, so they found somebody else. And so that morning uh, of the incident, I got a phone call that's saying that our, the officers were being shot at and they were being pinned down. And I remember trying to get a hold of your dad and I was calling him and calling him and, and he texted me back because I can't talk right now, we're taking fire. And I really didn't understand what that meant. I knew that, I thought, well, maybe they're at a distance away. I didn't know where his location was. And then later coming to find out, you know, where he was pinned down behind a tree for, for quite a long time. And so, um, you know, I, I, I talked with him a little bit after that, but I, I, I think our relationship was really more just not touchy-feely, just, you know, uh, kind of like, I'm there for you if you need me, you're there for me if I need you, and we'll, we'll deal with it at that. You know, it's, we would get together at different events and stuff, and he and I'd be by ourselves, and we'd talk about it, or we'd kind of slip away and talk about it. We would never talk about it in front of the family. We'd never talk about it around the dinner table. It just wasn't, I don't think we, we never said it, but I just think both we think we applied that it wasn't appropriate to discuss things. And he would ask me questions about how I would handle things and I would ask him questions about how he would handle things. And and so we would just kind of, not that we didn't want to talk about it, but it's certain things you just don't talk about around your kids and the family and stuff. So what do you do with your sibling after they've been through something tragic? Well, first of all, that after an incident like that happens, your relationship is not going to be the same ever again. And... You have to you have to really look at your your brother or your sister and say okay are they are they acting the same are they treating their family the same are they treating me the same as they did prior to the incident and if not you really need to talk with them and if they won't take that if they won't take that conversation or have that conversation you maybe need to talk to their spouse or loved one their significant other someone that can really have an influence on them and say look at I see a difference and does anybody else see a difference and if you if you're maybe you're just imagining it, but if not, you're probably seeing a difference in someone. And I did see a difference in your dad, you know. Uh, but I didn't act on it. I feel I just thought, okay, he's gonna be able to handle it himself. And you know, it was hard. It was hard for him to handle it. And looking back at it now, I should have stepped in and really just, you know, <laughs> for lack of a better word, slapped him in the face and said, hey, this is what I see, and you need some help. And I think that would have been that would have been really helpful at that time. I think it was kind of hard for him. Uh, well, I know it was hard for him looking back at it now. 
seeing what he was going through and, and we would get together and stuff and seeing the difference in him after the shooting and not really taking that into consideration that maybe that shooting, that incident, what he'd gone through had really affected him. And I kind of thought, well, he'll handle it. He'll do it his own way. And if he wants, if he needs my help, he'll ask me. I don't know what he went through. I don't know the feeling that he went through when he was pinned down and getting shot at, but I've had to deal with with tragedies of losing coworkers and on, in the line of duty and and different things of people suffering and dying in my hands. And that's part of being in the fire service. And so I am, you know, if, if to do, to, to act different, uh, if I would have done anything different, I would have, I would have stepped in more. I would have not just as a, not just as a brother, but as a coworker, and you know you you know what they're kind of going through but you don't know what they're going through and it's hard to say why you know you walk up to someone and say i know what you're going through no i don't know i didn't know what he was going through but i could try to help him get through what he went through as a sibling you see something and you're not sure what to do do you talk to other family members about it how's it going to affect the rest of the family i would mention it to to my dad and my mom and you know and and my mom would say well you know do you think he needs help and i say yeah i think he needs help but um, it's hard sometimes to tell someone that they need help and it's hard to sometimes and I've been in that point too where someone tells you you need help and to accept that you need help and I think that's where my brother was at that point it was it was he was very mad he was very frustrated he was angry at everything everybody I mean it didn't matter who you were he was mad at you and for someone to come in and tell him you need help I don't know who could have told him that at that point um, Fortunately, you know, his, his relationship with your mom and, and that, that survived and I know it was rocky, um, but it's hard when you want to say, I want to help you, but it's hard to say sometimes, maybe I just need to let the dust settle and see where we go from here, but you want to help and then maybe, you know, you, you maybe you can't help. Our family walked around eggshells for a while around, uh, my brother because we didn't want to, we didn't want to offend him, disturb him, hurt him, but you know. Like I said, sometimes you just gotta take someone by the shoulder and say, listen, I'm here to help you and you're gonna get my help. And so, you know, I think it needs to go both ways. The family needs to know what to say and when to say it. And the person that's dealing with PTSD needs to know that the family just cares about them. And they're only saying what they're saying because they see something that you don't. So what's my Uncle Paul's best advice for someone who is a sibling of a first responder? If you're gonna have a sibling that's a first responder and talk about it before say you know if something happens in our career you know especially like our son eric your your, your cousin he's coming up in the fire service he wants to be a firefighter and i'm gonna tell him when he gets started something happens in your life in your career that's going to affect you emotionally we're going to be there for you so don't shut us out pre-plan it get that talk done beforehand so that when it does happen say hey you made me a promise shake each other's hands say, you made me a promise that we were going to talk about this so when it does happen they know that you kind of preloaded it and and you know it's it's hard for siblings sometimes it's easier for friends it's hard for siblings because you see each other all the time friends can walk away and never see each other again siblings you know no matter what you're always gonna be siblings for the family you know talk with the, your loved one that you that you believe is ha that's had a tragic incident at work that you believe needs help there are professional people out there I know my brother had some professional help wonderful person she did 
great with my brother, but you have to also accept what the doctors talk, tell you. You have to take it both ways. You have to go to them, and you also have to accept it. And just remember, your family's there. They love you, and then they'll, they'll do anything to help you. Dr. Janet Price-Sharps, here we are again. Good evening. Um, so this episode, as we were talking about before, was a little challenging for me to record. That's why it took so long. But um, let's just get right into it. Um, the kind of umbrella theme of this whole, of all three conversations was communication. And each one of them, each one of my family members didn't want to talk to my dad for their own reason. But the biggest one was walking on eggshells. They didn't want to piss him off. It wasn't worth the fight. Um, what's your best advice for a family member who feels like that? I very much understand their point because first responders that and anybody that has PTSD tends to overreact because they have too much adrenaline. So then there's this tendency to everybody to just kind of shuts down in the family because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing and then they don't want to get in an argument and they don't want to upset the person and and so they try and reach out to the person a lot of times initially then that's rebuffed um and i think especially more so with first responders and other groups that have ptsd um first responders aren't supposed to get broken they aren't supposed to get injured they're not supposed to hurt they're supposed to be uh, like superheroes and nothing bothers them and that's not accurate i mean i think they take and see more than the average human by far and still can carry on but everybody has a breaking point and because we tell them you can't have a breaking point uh and it's not okay to take time to fix yourself and it's not okay to take breaks um they just keep going basically until they drop and so um that's the mindset we teach them and then we're shocked when they do that and then the family is family usually knows way before anybody else you know they and they start saying things to their spouse like what's the matter with you nothing everything's fine everything's fine i'm fine why are you picking on me why are you nagging at me why are you talking to me like this i'm sick and tired of you bringing this up i'm fine <clears throat> and the family member is looking at that first responder going, no, you're not, but I don't know what to say because I've said everything I can say, and every time I bring it up, you get mad, so I don't know what to do. So I guess one of the things with this podcast is that we want to increase awareness, and that's for the family, but that's also for the first responder. If your family member is saying to you, there is a problem, you need to stop and you need to listen to them and you need to go huh all right maybe i need to sit down and actually have a discussion with them rather than a get defensive b get angry c yell at them and d go back to work <laughs> so you can avoid them <laughs> which is the other thing that people do they get they get uncomfortable they don't want to think about it they're pretending it's not happening even though they know it's happening, most of the first responders I've treated, they'll say, yeah, I, I knew I was crashing, but I didn't know what to do. And I didn't want to worry my family. I didn't want to worry my kids. I didn't want to worry my wife or husband. Um, but I didn't know what to do. And I'm sure that heck is not, I'm not going to tell my coworkers. 
I'm not going to tell the department. Uh, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to go off on injury. Um, so I'm just going to live in this private, dark hell that I, I feel like I can't get out of. And so as hard as it is, I would tell family members, just keep loving that person even when they're not lovable even when they're angry. Now, obviously, if there's physical abuse or that kind of thing, I'm not saying stay with that person. But what I am saying is the, the more you argue with that person, the, the more they're going to heat up and avoid you and crash and burn. Um, and keep pointing them towards healthy. And the way you do healthy with a first responder is Let's sit and watch this funny movie. <laughs> Let's uh, play, I don't know, Jenga. Let's say, you know, anything that's kind of distracting. The nagging usually doesn't help. And, and I know that's people's tendency of, have you done this? Have you done that? You need to do this. Why haven't you done that? I'm worried about you. And usually they, they literally shut it out and, and start avoiding that person. So the more you can get them involved in fun things, hey, you know, I know you have some time on the books. Um, could you take a couple of days? Let's go to the coast, you know, uh, rather than you need to do this, you need to do that, you know, maybe um, making them the protein shake so that they're not reaching for the caffeine. So they're actually getting deeper sleep, you know, just those little things that you kind of slowly add in um, and, you know, standing by that person and walking through it with that person rather than being mad at that person. And it's hard not to get mad at them because they're so obnoxious a lot of times uh, before they get into treatment. Um, kind of on this, along the same lines of communication, uh, my grandpa talks about not wanting to mention anything to my dad, especially after my mom had mentioned something to him in fear that my dad would get mad at my mom. Um, so a family member who's kind of struggling with that aspect of communication, um, what do they do? How do they go about that? So if I remember correctly, your grandfather was in the fire service. So one of the things that he could do or somebody that can relate to the first responder can tell stories on the old days on how they coped with tough things rather kind of an oblique measure rather than a, a direct on measure mm. so yeah you know I remember I used to get so tired and you know one of the things I did I always did that and you know we had some good times you know we just went out and watched a funny movie you know whatever it was you know hopefully it wasn't going and getting soused right you know but some some healthy coping strategy that they can kind of add in there without saying you need to do this and why haven't you done that mm. or i'm noticing you really aren't doing well um because Usually by the time the first responder isn't doing well, they're so defended, you know, they are determined they're going to just keep going. And so any kind of frontal attack in that area is going to put them even more on the defensive and then they're going to start avoiding you. So I understand, you know, those family dynamics and those are very common when somebody has PTSD. Um, but spending time with that person, going duck hunting, going fishing, let's take the boat out, let's, whatever it is your family does for fun, 
do that with that first responder. Get them out of the house on their days off to go play. And the first responder a lot of times isn't going to want to do that because they're exhausted and they're not sleeping well. But if you can get them to kind of relax, you know, say, let's just go out for two hours and then come back and we'll just watch a funny movie. I just want to spend the day with you Hmm. along that line. So in, in the first two questions, I'm, I'm kind of noticing a common theme with, you know, within your answers, I think. And correct me if I'm wrong, are you maybe suggesting not to actually confront this thing head on, uh, kind of a workaround and yes. kind of in a distracting matter, correct? Yes. Help them acquire those healthy coping strategies without putting them on the defensive. Let's move on to what my grandma said about communicating with my dad while he was going through the P, uh, thick of PTSD. Um, she talks about not wanting to talk to him about the incident or asking if he's okay because she didn't want to make him relive the trauma. Do you risk uh, making someone relive the trauma if you're asking them about their PTSD or if they're okay? That's a good question. Um, <clears throat> again, I'm, I'm a big fan of oblique, so I would probably say, you know, you've gone through a lot this last year. And I've noticed that um, you seem a little bit different. And, and so I'm not asking you anything about it. Um, but I am wondering, is there something I can do to make your life a little happier? You know, is there something that would just put a smile on your face today? You know, and like with your grandmother, is there something I can cook for you that you just might enjoy today? You know, and that's kind of a nice way of saying to the family member, I know it's been tough, and I'm I'm tracking. You know, I get it. But I also am not going to invade your space and force you to speak about it because a lot of times that makes it worse because a lot of times the first responder doesn't want to share it with the family because they, they don't want to worry the family. They don't want the family to think about it or to worry about it or to even focus on it. So where they might talk to another first responder about it. Like, um, I know that your dad had a brother that was in the fire service. He might have been more likely to talk to him about it than his mom, right? Because he's going to protect his mom. Well, since you brought that up, you know, a lot of, well, it's not very uncommon that first responders have other family members in the service as well. Yeah. Um, first responders in general aren't very talkative when it comes to this type of thing my family in particularly um, especially the men in my family aren't very talkative when it comes to feelings or mental health or whatnot how do you overcome that barrier it's a good question I <clears throat> I have found that especially with first responders um, you don't necessarily dive in with the emotions you more dive into how you doing you know Oh, man, I, I know that after I went through an incident a while back, I didn't sleep very well. Are you sleeping? You know, because that's the kind of thing people feel more comfortable sharing. Um, the deep hurt, the deep pain, yeah, probably not. Um, but, main, you know, maybe talking about, man, you know, I remember one time I had a really tough call. And um, so somebody told me to drink chamomile tea, and that really helped me. Have you ever tried that? You know, just kind of those, and you open up the conversation in a very safe way. Um, and if they're two first responders, they can talk about the surface kind of stuff. And then if the person that's hurting wants to open up, that's when they might open up, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but you don't, you don't 
attack it again head on. You're going to kind of go around around it and say, hey, you know, I, uh, man, I had a time when I, I just didn't want to eat anything. How are you eating? Because I know you've been through a lot in the last few months. You know, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. Because those sure. are safe things to talk about. Right. That makes sense. Um, my Uncle Paul mentions how he's going to talk to his son who's um, coming up in the fire service and, you know, make sure that he gets the help, you know, right after the first incident or make sure that they promise each other to communicate. What do you think about some sort of pact like that? Oh, absolutely. And I think resiliency training is is such an important thing. And so, first of all, helping people to understand, I know that all first responders struggle with sleep because they're called out a lot. That I mean, it's not like they can go. No, I don't really feel like going today. You know, they're they're um, they're going to be ordered out. You know, so but helping them to understand. Okay, but when you do get downtime, you need to sleep. And helping the family to understand that. And if your uh, uncle's son gets married, his spouse needs to understand that too. Right? Is is okay now you've got him home do not hand him a whole list of honeydews yeah sleep later you you've got all these things to do no sleep's got to come first right Mm. and so teaching them some of those things that we've talked a lot about on the podcast but also those red flags like if you're having a bunch of nightmares and they don't go away uh, if you're having panic attacks so you feel like you're having a heart attack but it's not a heart attack if you um are reliving events over and over. Now, that's a common thing two or three, even a week after an event, maybe even two weeks after an event. If it's a month or two months and you're still going over and over an event, that's time to just go in and talk to somebody. Again, use the clinicians as a mental chiropractor. Don't wait until you can't move and you're, you know, you're not wanting to even get out of bed. Um when when your family starts making comments about why are you so angry all the time, you know, that's a big red flag. You know, you've really changed and it, I, I don't know, it doesn't feel like you even like me anymore. Big red flag. Um, you know, why are you so irritable? Why are you so short fused? Why, you know, why are you driving like that? You know, why are you yelling at everybody out the window? You know, those are the kinds of red flags um, that tells the person they need to stop. They probably need to take a day or two off and just sleep. They need to recalibrate their system. But I also think one of the biggest things that people can do is not get into the woulda, shoulda, couldas. Don't go down the rabbit hole to begin with. And if people understand how important that is, maybe we can save some people from going into full-blown PTSD. The, I wish I could have gotten there sooner. Okay, you didn't. There's undoubtedly reasons why you didn't. Let it go, you know? If there was something that you could have changed about the event, fine, change it in the future. Don't leave that event open and circulating because the brain is going to treat it like it's still going on. You know, come to peace with it and, um, you know, do the absolute best job that you can do, as my field training officer, Kurt Smith, said, and then drive away. And that, that event is behind you. That's why you do the best that you can do, and that's all you can do. Okay. Dr. Janet price Sharps, thank you so much. Hey, and that's all for today, guys. Thanks so much. Uh, glad you guys got to meet some of my family members. Uh, Happy New Year and a Merry Christmas to all of you. Again, thank you for all your support in 2019. 
and we'll see you after the first of the year. A special note about the holidays. Uh, for some people, the holidays can be really difficult, especially if um, the first responders had a bad call uh, during that time um, or is feeling particularly isolated or lonely um, and realize that they can feel isolated even when they're laying right next to you. So just be aware that um, that's a time when people often get more depressed and uh, go into more crises. And so really reaching out to those people that you care about, letting them know that you love them, because that love is going to drive them to get well. It's going to remind them why they need to get well. And for you that are first responders that are going out and taking care of us every day, thank you for your service. Thank you for keeping us safe in our homes. And God bless.